continue our journey through Job. You're getting to Zophar, and, and I'll talk about it at the end, but this is the last time that he's speaking uh, in this book, and it's a discussion of wickedness, but uh, they're going to talk about two different views of how the wicked end. Job's going to argue one uh, scenario, the biblical side, and, and Zophar is going to argue uh, the man-made religion, the, the traditions of man and what he looks at. And so tucked in a discussion of wickedness, we're going to find uh, the battle between what man thinks should be done on earth and how it works and that works righteousness or prosperity gospel mentality versus a gospel mentality, hope, a redeemer, a mediator, the need uh, for Christ to step in. I put here, do you ever make the um, classic listening error? And I call this the husband error. Uh, the one where you listen only to give your response. The one where you listen to give your wife some knowledge, right? You listen to them talk. Uh, the only thing that's on your mind is the point that you want to make. You listen to the other person's words only to use that as ammunition against them. Uh, you're set up to make sure they get what you're thinking. And I put down here, this is Zophar's style of listening. Actually, it's all the friends, but Zophar brings it to a pinnacle here. <laughs> you see, he's bothered by what Job is claiming, yet his response is not designed for comfort, nor does it address Job's questions. Instead, he's listened to Job this whole time only so that he can give his take on the situation. And that is centered in this idea of wickedness and the wicked. He, he's going to say this, that the wicked are sure to face doom on earth. And, and by the way, and I'm going to mention this probably three other times in the message. If you read Psalm 73, you know he's wrong. So if you want to look at Scripture, interpreting Scripture, you go to Psalm 73 and you recognize that Zophar is wrong, but this is his worldview. This is what he thinks. So to get his full display of this perspective, he brings it to bear. And that's what we see in chapter 20. So take a look at what Zophar says. Now, recognize this. He is irritated and almost irate that Job has questioned the system. Uh, Zophar is, is worked up about the fact that Job doesn't just believe what he's been saying, what they all know. And so he pushes back with a look at punishment on the wicked. This is similar to what Bildad did. Bildad is talking more about uh, punishment and he, he lays all these metaphors down. Zophar is laying somewhat more practical look at this is what the wicked will face. It is a look at hell in that sense, same as, same as Bildad's, uh, but he is doing so because he's refuting something that Job has said. And if you remember in chapter 19, Job makes a very bold, confident statement uh, that's tucked with his doubt and his anxiety, and that's that my Redeemer liveth, and that I will see my Redeemer face to face. I will stand in front of him. That means I will have a right relationship with him. And here's what's interesting. All of what Zophar is saying, and, and recognize this, indirectly refutes Job's claim to God being his Redeemer and mediator. So Zophar is, is hearing what Job just said, and he says, you're wrong. He's saying there is no redeemer and mediator coming on the scene, but instead goes back to his system, which is wicked people fall, good people get good things. And so because he sees it that way, he sees the wicked being punished on earth, and he, he accurately describes some of the agony of the wicked as they face eternity without Christ, but he misapplies it again to Job and forces everything into an earthly time frame uh, but reality is this, it's not just his timing that's off, it's his whole worldview, it's his whole theology, because he has this in mind. 
If I have enough good, God gives me good or blesses me. If I do bad, God will punish me. And you can link it to philosophies of today where if I have enough faith, then God will pour blessings on me. And if I don't have enough faith, then I won't get the windfall that I was looking for. The prosperity gospel is woven into his theology, though he's going to be looking at it completely from a negative uh, perspective. So we dive into chapter 20. It says, Then answered Zophar the Namathite and said, Therefore do my thoughts cause me to answer. In other words, I have to talk. Uh, I can't stop from talking. And for this I make haste. I've heard the check of my reproach, and the spirit of my understanding causeth me to answer. Four is a critical verse. Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon earth? This is his statement of what he bases everything on. Man. Humanity. Don't you know we've always done it this way? Don't you know this is how we think? Don't you know that nothing can wander away from what we already know? And it says that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. Now, verses one through three is how Zophar begins, and he's reacting to Job's words about their counsel. He's upset about it. He's worked up because Job has told them their advice is useless. And so he says, well, I feel prompted to speak again. And he says, I'm going to talk. I can't help myself. Yet he says this about it. This is a pretty bold statement. Don't worry, Job. I'm not going to get emotional. It's going to come from my reasoning and from my understandings, which is a dig at Job, who has been extremely emotional uh, through this. Then he transitions to introduce his concept, and he highlights something, and that's that verse 4, of old since man was placed upon earth. And this is this concrete or push that he has to elevate man's wisdom over Job's hope in a redeemer to vindicate him. He's saying, don't you know, we've had a system for a long time. We have this figured out. So don't you dare shift your hope to some redeemer or mediator. Don't you think at all that God is going to come in? God has a system, and this is the system. You do bad, you get in trouble. You do good, you get rewarded. And then he moves to that first point, and he's only negative throughout his whole speech. He doesn't say anything positive. Wicked people will fade away, and their joy is only momentary. That's the point of his introduction. Then he continues, Though his excellency mount up to the heavens and his head reach upon the clouds, yet he shall perish forever like his own dung. They which have seen him shall say, where is he? He shall fly away as a dream and shall not be found. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. The eye also which saw him shall see him no more, neither shall his place any more behold him. His children shall seek to please the poor and his hand shall restore their goods. His bones are full of the sin of his youth, which lie down with him in the dust." What's he saying is this, the wicked may prosper and be elevated to the heavens, but ultimately they will fall. And this is critical in this life. Here on earth, they're going to fall. Their victory will be one generation at best. The wicked will not transfer over to the next generation. They'll be forgotten. They will become like dung, which is as harsh sounding then as it is now, and float away like a dream. Now, realize this. Job mentioned that reality for himself in chapter 7, 7 through 10. He is a breath, he says. He will be seen no more. He will be gone and fade like a cloud. And what has Zophar done? He's picked up a trick from Bildad and he quotes Job and says, yep, you feel like you're going to be a breath? Wicked people will be a breath. And so he's always coming to a conclusion. You are suffering like a wicked person, Job, so you must be wicked. Because remember, 
His is a earnings-based theology. I do good, I get good. I do bad, I get bad. You're getting bad, so therefore you must be bad. He's manipulating the cry of pain from Job into the proof that he is wicked. And I mentioned this last week. There's hard to say of anything worse you could do to a hurting person than to take the words they share, the emotions they express, and then say, ah, I'm going to beat you with those words. That's what Zophar is going to walk through the whole time. He continues describing the fading of the wicked by describing the fate of his children. And this is a tough one in Hebrew. It either means that they're going to be poor and be begging like the poor, or that they're actually going to come to the poor begging. They're going to be so poor that they're going to need the poor to help them. And there's another part of this that says you're going to be going to the poor and paying them back for the wickedness of your father. It goes on, the wicked person's youthful vigor and energy will be cut short and he'll die in the prime of life. And remember when Job was living, he's at the prime of life. Adult children, young enough to obviously have another family at the end of Job. You see that but his kids are, are moving on into the world. He's at that pinnacle moment and he's snuffed out. That's what Job is facing. Now, Zophar switches. So he's, he set this up with these generalities. He's going to do that, the wicked. But just like Bildad, he's making sure Job doesn't miss the point that they're talking about Job. Now he goes to the idea that wickedness is sweet but it ends up poisoning you. So he goes on in verse 12. He says this, Though wickedness be sweet in his mouth, though he hide it under his tongue, though he spare it and forsake it not, but keep it still within his mouth. These are all things about savoring wickedness. Yet his meat in his bowels is turned. It is the gall of asp within him. And I kind of look at this. I don't know if you watch kids get a piece of candy. Sometimes when I'm handing, or most times when I'm handing candy out in Awanas, it's all this hard candy And I think that the kids are going to crack their teeth because they don't ever lick a lollipop. They just shove it in their mouth and start chomping down. You could hand them rocks and they would go right at it. You know, it just never ends. Uh, To make a more adult analogy, I guess, I don't know if you like beef jerky, but if you ever get, I do, um, sadly, it's just to show my standards. But um, (laughs) I learned in Nicaragua, I was taking a motorcycle tour and somebody had beef jerky and they gave me some, but if you just chew it and swallow it, there's nothing there's no savoring it. So I still remember getting a chunk of beef jerky, putting it in my mouth and riding with it for an hour. And, and I learned that you can get all the savory deliciousness out of it. And some of you look at me thinking, you're a disgusting animal. Uh, and we feel sorry for Heather, but it, it is the same concept. If you just chomp down beef jerky, you just got a slight flavor of meat and down it goes. But if you leave it in your mouth, you savor it. And that's what uh, Zophar is saying. He's saying, You're going to put sin and wickedness in your mouth. And though it's sweet, though you've worked it and you've enjoyed it, that you've you've savored every last ounce of it. You put the beef jerky in for an hour ride on a dirt road. You have gotten the most out of it. When you swallow it, it's going to poison you. That ultimately wickedness will make you sick. And then he carries that analogy on. He says, he has swallowed down riches and he shall vomit them up again. God shall cast them out of his belly. In other words, God's going to come in and make you sick from your evil. He shall suck the poison of asp. The viper's tongue shall slay him. 
And then he shall not see the rivers, the floods, the brooks of honey and butter. That which he labor for shall he restore and shall not swallow it down. According to his substance shall the restitution be, and he shall not rejoice therein, because he hath oppressed and hath forsaken the poor, because he hath violently taken away an house which he builded not. And so what he's saying is all of those savored and wicked pleasures will be vomited back up. God is going to act against him, which, by the way, Job has been saying that God has acted against him. And so, again, Zophar is saying, yeah, that's what God does to the wicked. You savor wickedness. It gets in your belly. God acts and makes you sick or poisons you from it. And that's exactly what you've already admitted to, Job. We don't even have to ask if you're guilty. You're guilty because you've already admitted to being guilty. And then it says it'll be like eating the poison of snakes, suffering from the poisonous bite. And that's uh, just as a note, the ancients viewed the tongue of the snake as the venomous part. That's how they referred to the snake, its tongue being venomous. Uh, they knew it was in the bite, but they would talk about the tongue. And so he says, you're going to be poisoned by the tongue of the snake. Uh, the wicked will miss out on watching the overflowing abundance and blessing in the land. When it talks about the brooks of Honey and butter, when a land overflowing with milk and honey, as the, as the promised land is described to the Israelites, that's that concept. You're going to miss out on the land having an abundance of the staple items it needs. Uh, ultimately, you're not going to enjoy the gains of your wicked work. He'll, he'll have to restore what was taken because it was gained in oppression and theft. Then Zophar switches again and he starts looking at how the wicked are discontent and that they're going to face the wrath of God. He goes on, Surely he shall not feel quietness in his belly. He shall not save of that which he desired, which is speaking to this idea, you're never going to be satisfied. The wicked is never happy. They've never stolen enough money, gained enough. Goes on, uh, There shall none of his meat be left. Therefore shall no man look for his goods. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he shall be in straits. Every hand of the wicked shall come upon him. And so the wicked person is never satisfied by what they have. And ultimately, he will consume his food and his wealth, and there will be nothing left for his children. And in the middle of feeling satisfied, he goes on with his life work. His whole empire will collapse around him. (laughs) So wicked people are never going to be happy with what they've stolen. At some point, they'll consume their wealth. They never pass it on to their children. And we know differently, right? Never has a wicked person ever been able to pass on wealth. That's Zophar's take. And then he goes on and says, in the prime of your empire and your existence, it's going to be snatched away. And I want to remind you of how many sheep and goats and camels and houses and wealth that Job had, his prominence in his society, his leadership there, and it's all been snatched away. Again, Job, your life points to your guilt. You're guilty by the fact that you're suffering. And it says, when he is about to fill his belly, God will cast the fury of his wrath upon him and shall rain it upon him while he is eating. And the idea is here is God is going to come down in the midst of what you have, in the midst of your greatness, and God's full fury is going to be poured on you. And think about it again. When did Job feel his crushing suffering? These guys feel like they're in the prime of life, especially Job. So in the pinnacle of your gains, Job, because there's no doubt that Job is the wealthiest of his friends, the most influential of his friends, that he has been blessed beyond belief. And so they're just coming after him in this moment. And they move again really easily from their principle on the wicked to a conversation about Job. And then he goes on, he shall flee from the iron weapon, that's a sword, and the bow of steel shall strike him through. It is drawn and cometh out of the body. Yea, the glittering sword cometh out of his gall. Terrors are upon him. 
And Zophar now moves to the warrior image of God, which again, don't miss the fact that Job has talked about God hunting him down in a warrior-like format. And he depicts the crushing fury being enacted on the wicked. So they're going to run from the sword and God's going to shoot his bow and arrow or shoot the arrow from a bow into their vital organs with a bronze tip. You're going to pull it out and ultimately still get killed by the sword. In other words, it's complete destruction. And it unfolds so that all darkness shall be hid in his secret places. A fire not blown shall consume him. It shall go ill with him that is left in his tabernacle. The heaven shall reveal his iniquity and the earth shall rise up against him. The increase of his house shall depart and his good shall flow away in the day of his wrath. And he's saying this, everything you own is going to be lost in darkness. An unfanned flame. In other words, no one is prompting this flame to go forward. It's going to destroy him and he's going to lose everything that's left in his tent. So everything you have will be sucked up. Verse 27 is another critical one to see Zophar's theology. Zophar says your sin will be revealed. Now, we know that from Numbers, it talks about that sin is going to be revealed, but he does it in this context. He's saying to Job, you're not going to have a redeemer stand and tell you that you're right to make it right. But instead, you're going to pay the full price for your sin. He's saying this, you're not going to be vindicated. You're going to be convicted. You want a courtroom drama? Your sins will be revealed. They're going to be exposed there and you're going to face the full wrath. So 27 and 4 kind of tie up Zophar's theology. He's saying again, you don't get to change the system. God is not going to redeem you. God doesn't step in for you. You face your sin and that's all you have. And again, why does he say that? Because he lives in a benefit-based religion. I do good, I get good. You do bad, you get bad. And it's about what I do, what, what I'm accomplishing. And so in other words, Zophar does not want salvation to rest in the hands of a redeemer. He does not want undeserved grace. He wants to earn it. And so undeserved suffering, again, destroys this system because undeserved suffering requires undeserved grace. But he doesn't want that. And so he comes back to him and he's saying, no. I'm going to undercut your hope. You have no hope, he's telling Job. You will not be vindicated. It's impossible. God doesn't do that. He brings your sin to bear. And then he closes with this. This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the heritage appointed unto him by God. (laughs) In other words, he's telling Job, you want God to redeem you? God does this to wicked people. He makes them pay. This is a divinely appointed inheritance of the wicked here on earth. And notice this, Zophar doesn't mince any words. He wanted Job to feel the fury and he wanted him to cling to no hope. But we look a little bit now at what Zophar means. And I want you to see he's focused on the negative side of retribution. Their whole system is retribution. Good for good, bad for bad. You put good money in the soda machine, you get a good soda. You put bad money in the soda machine, you get poison. That's their logic that comes through. He has zero concern in his speech for the benefits of doing right, though, He describes in detail what the wicked face and really connects it directly to Job. As one writer noted, while speaking in principle, Zophar definitely has Job in mind. And I put this, he is convinced, one, that Job is wrong. He looks at Job and says, your theology is wrong. Hope in a redeemer and a mediator who is God is completely off base. You don't hope in God to step in for you. There is no hope that God moves for you. 
That's what Bildad said. Why in the world do you think God will change the order of the world to redeem you? We know that God changed the order of the world to redeem us. But he's saying, how dare you even think that? That's off base. Because he thinks humankind's wisdom of old, solid, grounded, and traceable, beats Job's hope of a redeemer and mediator. I would rather, as Zophar says, have what I know and that I control than to ever hope in this redeemer, mediator, and, and I hate the idea of a need for someone else. I'll stick with what I know. I'll stick with what we've come up with because we're smart enough to figure this out. So far, as one commentator notes, thinks that instead of knowing that his redeemer is living, Job should know the ancient wisdom. Don't waste time thinking about a redeemer. Don't waste time looking for God to step in. Don't turn to him at his, and throw yourself at his feet, so to speak. Don't repent. Don't, don't submit. Instead, put some energy into knowing what mankind thinks. Understand what we've come up with. And apparently I'm going to struggle with my microphone the whole time. So I put here, what a dangerous thought to think to make what we know superior to knowing the Savior. And think about that, because we're going to close with that idea because we're, we're plagued with a Christianity today that has their thought higher than knowing a Savior, and they've come up with their own way to prove salvation, earn salvation, or weave or tuck in their social gospel to the real gospel. And so here is Zophar. This is how it starts. It's saying, hey, you need to know what we know. You don't need to know a Redeemer. You need to know what we know. You need to get our system down. You need to figure this out to make it. Be aware so that you don't get entangled in the snare of your own traditions and miss the clear view of Jesus and his redemptive work on your behalf. Because you quickly will move to what you know versus knowing Christ. Well, being convinced, one, that Job is wrong, Zophar naturally is convinced, I put two, that Job is wicked. He carefully crafted a message that defines the punishment here on earth for the wicked one. And he does so applying it or misapplying it to Job's life and circumstances. Zophar sees these circumstances as the given outcome on earth for only, and this is critical, only the wicked. And so the reality of Job's suffering equates to a guilty verdict on his part. <coughs> you, don't, you don't experience this, Job, unless you're a wicked person. Let me flip it around to the positive. You're not getting what you want. You don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith. That's why you don't have enough money. If you had enough faith and you gave enough to said person saying that, you'll get your payday because God will always pay you out for your faith. He's always, there's always a material response to faith. There's always a money solution and, and I say that because that's exactly what the friends are saying from a negative standpoint. And today we're plagued all around the world with that same mentality, a prosperity style gospel, a materialism that permeates everything. Well, get right with the Lord. And he'll give you a bunch of money. Get right with the Lord and then he'll grow your bank account. Get right with the Lord and you'll get the wife or husband you want. You name it. Do this and you'll have health. Do this, you have wealth. All of it is centered around materialism and how quickly we divert. And that's how we pray even. Our prayers are constant. We think that subconsciously. Well, I haven't prayed enough about this. Because if we pray enough, surely God will have to give us what we want, right? 
because we control God. He's a genie. If we rub the lamp, he comes out. He has to give us three wishes. See, that's the idea of Zophar's teaching. It's just a negative look at it. And so what does he come? He, he is, he's saying to Job, you're condemned rightfully and unavoidably by God. You're going to be destroyed, which leads naturally to seeing this about Zophar. And I think it's fascinating because he closes his speech and basically he says, I'm done. I'm done with you. Zophar does not speak again. The other two men go through one more round of discussion. And here's the thing. It doesn't articulate why Zophar doesn't speak, but you can see in how he finishes his speech that he's just, he's done with Job. There's no hope for Job. This final speech was to let Job know something. You're guilty, buddy, and you're going to face the consequences of your guilt. And I put here, what a sad place to be. Zophar trades his tradition and wisdom for the real hope of redemption. He trades his works of righteousness, which by the way, scripture makes clear as filthy rags for the overwhelming abundance of God's work and salvation. And with this twisted mentality, it's little wonder that he quits first on his friend. He has nothing to offer except condemnation. But here's the, here's the sad thing. If he would just recognize the beauty of undeserved suffering, then he could fathom and understand the beauty of undeserved grace. Zophar misses that. But we have to understand this. We never should miss that. We're never done this side of heaven, by the way. If you ever wonder, oh, am I done with this person? Have they rejected the gospel enough? Have they spurned me enough? Have they persecuted me enough? And the question and the answer to that question is, no, we never give up. We're never done preaching hope. That hope never fades. We carry a message of redemption to a lost and dying world. So let's be sure not to lose our passion for it and for them. Look, we know a lot of people will reject. A lot of people push back. A lot of people get nasty. A lot of people treat us poorly. And what does God say? Preach the gospel to them. Well, after Zophar's layout of wickedness and the wicked sure and unique end, a perspective that makes it impossible for Job to deny his guilt. That's the whole point. Zophar is pushing Job into a corner. Agree with me, admit you're wicked. That's your only recourse. Uh, there's no wonder in us that Job gives a rebuttal. He's never been short for words. And you can imagine if he's pushed back into a corner that he's going to have something to say. And so we turn now to what Job says. Job goes after their ideology here in a very direct way. He confronts it and them head on. He starts attacking in, in the right way their logic that says only bad things happen to bad people or more importantly, bad things will happen to bad people. So there's two things they say there. He does this by pointing to the prosperity of the wicked, which again, Psalm 73 has been abundantly clear about and shows that wicked people can live a full life and die in ease and pass their wealth on to their kids. He highlights this as one writer notes for this purpose. If in God's providence, the wicked can prosper, surely the devout may suffer. See, that's his point. They're saying you're suffering, so you're wicked. He's saying, no, wicked people don't suffer. They actually gain. And that means someone who's devout could suffer. There can be undeserved suffering. And he begins with a call for them to listen. Job answered, this is in 21, and said, Hear diligently my speech and let this be your consolations. Suffer me that I may speak. And after that, I have spoken, mock on. In other words, why don't you pause your critique for a second and just listen? 
As for me, it is my complaint to man. And if it were so, why should not my spirit be troubled? Mark me and be astonished and lay your hand upon your mouth. Even when I remember, I am afraid and trembling taketh hold on my flesh. He says to his friends, give me a minute to talk. Listen without responding. And think about this. How many times have you listened to somebody and you rolled their eye, your eyes at them? Or you've kind of, yeah, you grunt or hiss, as they would say. And that was very typical. We do disruptive gestures and there are vocal ways we'd agree without saying a word. We express ourselves clearly while someone's talking. We've already made up our mind. And Job is saying, why don't you just stop all of that Listen and then come back to your mockery. He goes on, he says, I'm not wrestling with you. I'm not fighting against man. My complaint's not against you. He says, because if it was, I wouldn't be as troubled. I would just debate this with you and work on. But he's trying to explain to them that he's wrestling is with God. He's impatient because he's not sure when God will act. And he's asking them to really see him and respond with the appropriate horror and sympathy because he's telling him, I'm horrified, I'm dismayed, I'm shaking. He then moves on to refute what has been assumed about the wicked. So he begins with the plea, give me a second, listen to me. I'm, I'm battling God in, in, in essence and explains why he's not followed the, the, the debate protocol that they would expect from him. He's been emotional and worked up. And then he goes right to undermine everything they've said. Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, Jay, or mighty in power? In other words, you say the wicked are punished? Why are they in power? Why do they rule? Let's be honest. If we took a cross-section of governments around the world, or even here, do you see wickedness or righteousness? And that's Job's point. Hey, take a look. See what's there. If your system is right, the wicked always fall on earth, then why are they old and powerful? This wipes their philosophy out in one question. He doesn't stop there. Being Job, he has a whole bunch of ways to, to make his point. So their seed is established in their sight with them and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull gendereth and faileth not. Their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. And this is what he's saying. Their kids become established on earth. Not only do they have children, they watch those children get a career. They watch that career advance. They get to see the grandbabies. They watch everything go well for their offspring. Their homes are secure, and it doesn't look like God's punishing them at all. Their endeavors are always successful. Thus, the bull always breeds, and the cow always has the calf. There is no miscarriage. There is no lack of breeding. That's the way of saying everything they, they do is successful. If they invest in a stock, it goes up. If they buy a business, it is successful. That is all what he's trying to tie to. They're always successful. It's actually the opposite. It seems like they get blessing just falls down for them. It goes on. They send their kids out in safety and the kids enjoy life freely and fearlessly. Remember the wicked are always looking over their shoulder. He's saying, no, they're not. They send their kids out and they don't even worry about it. They're fine. The kids are free and fearless. They celebrate with music. And this is important because when he says they celebrate with the timbrel and the harp and the organ, they use those words. This is saying not only 
what they celebrate with, but as a way of saying that the celebration was good. So it's saying they throw parties and it's not like parties that are thrown. It's like, well, wicked people are throwing parties and they're using it to manipulate or it's a work party. You've ever heard of that, right? You got to go have a work dinner and everyone's like, oh, you're so lucky. And you're like, well, I was working the whole time, right? That's, that's not it. He's saying they're throwing parties for fun and they enjoy them to their fullest. In other words, they're wealthy and they reap the benefits of their wealth. They actually enjoy their wealth. We're so used to thinking of rich people having quote unquote wealth and then always being a miser or not enjoying it. And he's trying to tell them that the wicked, and it's not bad to enjoy your wealth. You should, that, that's throughout scripture to enjoy the harvest. But he's saying the wicked are enjoying the harvest of their wealth. When they die, it's not prolonged or painful uh, to put it in perspective, we always say this, I want to die old and in my sleep. That's what they're doing. He's saying they, they live a full life. They never face any consequence. And when they die, they're, they're fat and happy, so to speak. Old, fat and happy, go, go to the grave and nothing's wrong. And then he goes beyond that. He starts talking about their character towards God. Therefore, they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And this is a key thought. And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Which, by the way, is the whole premise of the theology of the friends. We only do things to get something from God. The wicked go so far as to say, why do something? They have everything. They don't need anything from God. Think about our society. What are we missing? And I know everyone's going to say lower gas prices, cheaper food, better vacations. I, I know that. But when you think about it, what are you missing in life? Most of us, unless the AC broke in your car, have air conditioning even in a car as we drive back and forth. We have abundance here. And what it drove the wicked to say is, I don't see any point in serving God. And here's why. Their whole theology was built on this idea that I serve God to get something. Do you realize how dangerous that becomes when you preach to a society who has everything? I'm still blown away about what we have medicinally. I know we always want more, but I even told Heather I, when I fell and I ripped my shoulder out of socket, I started thinking, what did they do 200 years ago? Cut it off is what I was thinking. I've got to go. It hurts so bad. But there you get, they, they, they have 50 million drugs to put in you to make you not feel a thing. And I'm like, this is amazing. I'm glad I'm born now and not in 1800s. That and the AC thing, that's important to me. So I like AC and I like not feeling pain. So, um, but it's interesting when you, when you think about all this, we have so much. And that's exactly what the wicked say. What profit is there? You see, if serving God is materialistic, then boy, we have no argument now because God has richly blessed humanity and we have so much of what we need. And that's exactly what these wicked people do. Lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. 16 is Job saying, I'm not doing that though. See, they, they, these wicked people speak arrogantly and spurn God's involvement in their life. They don't want his wisdom. They don't want his involvement because they don't need anything from God. And see, if you're going to serve God because you need something at some point, you will stop serving God because you'll get what you want. Or you'll think God will never give it to you one way or the other. If you're serving God over materialism or what you'll get from him, well, then you're serving God for the wrong reason. 
The wicked are at least honest in that. Why serve him? There is no profit in serving God. We don't need him because we have everything we want. Job says, I get that. He is a man who had everything he wanted. He's the richest man in the world. That's the implication at the beginning. He says, but I've never, he said, wanted that type of wealth. And I never wanted the wicked to be a part of my inner circle. I've never gone there. never been tempted to do that. And so now Job switches and he starts asking a string of questions. Now, unfortunately, um, the translation we have here doesn't necessarily bring out the question that's in the Hebrew. So the Hebrew is kind of like a, a power punch of questions. So as you get to 17, it says, how oft is the candle the wicked put out? It shouldn't be an exclamation point. It should be a question mark. And then for the first couple of verses, you should see a question mark. So it should feel that way. It's not Job affirming that they get snuffed out. He's saying, how does this really happen? Does this really happen? You say it does. So here, let me read 17. How oft is the candle the wicked put out and how often cometh their destruction upon them? God distributed sorrows in his anger. There are stubbles before the wind and as chaff that the storm carrieth away. God layeth up his, his iniquity for his children. It says here, he rewardeth him and he shall know it. His eyes shall see his destruction and he shall drink of the wrath of the almighty. For what pleasure hath he in his house after him when the number of his months is cut off in the midst? Job is asking this, how often do the wicked get suddenly snuffed out? How often are they just blown away? He confronts their statements that the kids will pay for the evils done by highlighting a very interesting fact about the wicked. And it's this statement, who cares? Who cares? You do wrong all your life. You think everything's going great. You die. And then later on, something happens to your kids. He says, how is that punishment for the wicked? They never even knew about it. They didn't even care about it. Everything's perfect for them. And so he's just confronting them saying, where is this story? When's it happening? And then he makes a really interesting shift in 22 through 26. And it's important to see this. We've been talking about wicked people and wicked people and wicked people. And Job is trying to make a point. Your circumstances don't define your heart. It doesn't define your faith. It doesn't define your integrity. It doesn't define where you are in, in God or in Christ. And so he gives them an illustration that starts with a question. Shall any teach God knowledge? seeing he judgeth those that are high. In other words, do you guys want to question God's wisdom? What's the obvious answer to that? No, they don't. Then he gives an illustration. Now, he makes a switch here because there's two people. It's not one wicked and one not wicked. It's one who is fortunate and one who is unfortunate here. And he's doing this to drive them to one conclusion. Your circumstances do not define who you are. That's not who you are. So he goes on. One dieth in his full strength, being wholly at ease and quiet. His breasts are full of milk and his bones are moistened with marrow. In other words, there's a guy who's so fortunate that he has an abundance of everything in hand and the whole moistened with marrow, marrow, however you pronounce that. I just pretend it's the Dutch in me coming out if I'm mispronouncing something. But the, the reality is this. He's saying his health is there. There's no aches and pains and problems. Then he goes on to another one. And another dieth in the bitterness of his soul and never eateth with pleasure. That's a pitiful existence, right? This guy never has a good meal. He eats dirt all of his life. He never can get a hand up. And then 26, they shall lie down alike in the dust and the worm shall cover them. 
So he asked them a rhetorical question to which they say, no, we're not going to go against God's knowledge. And so he's saying this, in God's infinite wisdom, two dead people end up the same, dead. That's, that's their outcome. And all the good you had before you died is not in the grave. And all the bad you had doesn't carry to the grave. Death is an equalizer. Whether you're fortunate or unfortunate, you die and rot. So this is his point. Something more than circumstances and fortune reveal your character, your faith, and your integrity. See, he took it a step further. They've been temporally minded. If you've got good on earth, you're good. If you have bad on earth, you're bad. He says, wait a second. Let's just wipe that off the map. Here's a guy who has everything he wants and is fortunate. Here's the unfortunate soul over here. They die. And in God's infinite wisdom, they both rot. That's what happens to them. So he turns their attention to eternity and he says, all we know about this is that they face the same ending. We all have to die someday, right? And so he says, there's no way, unless you're going to question God, that God is going to evaluate everything about you based on how you feel now. And instead, he's driving the conversation to eternity. And he's turning it then back and saying, you can't judge me, my faith, my integrity, based on the circumstances I'm facing right now. If that's the case, then the poor sap is sinful and the healthy, happy one is rich. Now he turns the dialogue because he's smart enough to know what they're going to do. And he says, I know what you're going to think. He says, behold, I know your thoughts and the devices which you wrongfully imagine against me. For ye say, and this is them. So he's saying, I know what you think. I know what you're saying right now. And you're going to think this against me. He says, where is the house of the prince and where are the dwelling places of the wicked? And I want to put a little note there. Job ruled in his town and he was a righteous man. What happens when a righteous man rules in a town? Righteousness prevails. These other individuals desired to be righteous. They also were extremely wealthy and ruled where they were. And so the reality is this, around them, they don't always see wickedness flourishing because they have lived a righteous or right life and you can see a change taking place. In other words, they're not seeing the rampant corruption that's possible. Similar to we see some benefit to being in the United States and you go to some countries where corruption is rampant. And you think, wow, it's just wicked here because it crops up and it's obvious where there's some containment that is found in good governance. So he goes on here. Have you not asked them that go by the way? Haven't you talked to somebody who's walking with you? And do you not know their tokens that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction? They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. Who shall declare his way to his face and who shall repay him for what he's done? Yet shall he be brought to the grave and shall remain in the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet unto him and every man shall draw after him as there are innumerable for him. And what he's saying is this, you look around and you see right governance and, and that's a reality. Job and Zophar and Amar Eliphaz and Bildad. These are gentlemen who rule in their societies. And so the governance of their city state, so to speak, is going well, which just points to the concept of a right rule is going to lead towards that direction. But he's saying, what about everywhere else we hear from people? In other words, you hear the same people talking as I hear. You know that wicked people prosper. The evil person's prospered. They haven't seen judgment. No one confronts them. No one holds them accountable. And beyond that, he gets buried with dignity, with his name lifted up, 
and someone watches over the tomb. And he concludes with verse 34, which is a, is a final biting remark to their theology, and I use the word philosophy. How then comfort ye me in vain, seeing in your answers there remaineth falsehood? And he's saying this, what comfort can your empty philosophy give to me? It is nothing but a huge lie. It has zero value, which is the truth about it. He's not wrong when he evaluates them. I'm hoping we can connect the dots. Job is pretty intense. After begging them to listen, he kicks them as hard as he can or kicks their theology as hard as he can. He closes his speech strong and he's trying to make his point clear to the friends, which drives us to what he really means. He's trying to be clear and complete in his argument that their system is ridiculous. They've adhered himself to a philosophy that makes it impossible for them to see reality, and he confronts them on it. But he begins the argument with a cry for sympathy. He's trying to tell them something. He says this, I'm wrestling. He wants them to see that he's not in battle with them. They've been offended by how Job talked because he didn't follow protocol. This is not how you debate. This is not the correct way. You don't get all emotional and get all uh, personally attacking. You don't get this way. This is not proper but he's trying to tell them, I'm wrestling with something. I'm wrestling with something that's bigger than what you're thinking about. These emotions and outbursts come from the reality of what he's wrestling with. And, and as Ash notes, he is in a life and death struggle for justification in the presence of God. He is battling over the most important thing. Am I right with God? And it can't be based on how much blessing I face. It's not what I've gained in this world that's working. It can't be that. And so he's saying to his friends when he's asking for sympathy, I'm way beyond a simple debate on philosophy here. So he asked them to see him with unbiased eyes, to see him without the lens of their condemnation and philosophy, to recognize, be dismayed and appalled at the battle he faces, to empathize with his emotions and pain. But Job is not going to leave a faulty system unaddressed. So from that call for sympathy, he moves toward their logic and philosophy. And I put here, he is convincing. He proves with daily life examples that the wicked often live prosperous lives, die easy deaths, and do not face the punishment for the wickedness here on earth. Again, I'm going to remind you, I've said it enough. Go read it maybe. Psalm 73 proves his point. Job affirms that even though that is the case, he still has rejected the wickedness. He clearly states in verse 16 his desire for godliness. And he proves that if they would open their eyes and look around themselves honestly, they would come to the same conclusion. Job makes sure they understand the reality of that observation. He proves that life circumstances and struggles do not necessarily function to define a life. You're walking through a battle, a personal battle. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's uh, in your mental state. Maybe it is, you name it, financial. And someone says, wow, you must have messed up. That must define you. That's who you are. And Job is saying that doesn't define a life and it doesn't define your faith. It, it's a suffering and a struggle you're walking through. He says, I'm not wicked just because I suffer like the wicked from their worldview. Because the wicked can prosper, it means the righteous can suffer. Go back to his illustration. He says, even if you're fortunate or unfortunate, it all, it's more than your skin and your pocket is what he's saying. It's more than your health and your money. Your life, your heart is not defined by how healthy you are and how much wealth that you have. 
That circumstantial evidence is not the proof of a godly life. God looks deeper than that. But Job doesn't leave his rebuke of the system at being convincing. At the close, he is condemning, and rightfully so. He shows discernment in giving this system, this prosperity-style theology, zero ground. He makes it clear that their gospel model, their system is utter nonsense and an outright lie. Here's why. Job's not okay with their worldview, nor can he condone it. Why? One, because it's a lie and it undermines the truth and trivializes God. God is all tied up in what he gives me. Well, God is great because he gave me money. God is not great because he didn't give me money. It's all very temporal. And so he has to condemn this viewpoint because it doesn't look to eternity. It doesn't look at God as God is. God doesn't judge on circumstantial evidence, nor is his kingdom relegated to material blessings and manipulations. You see, Job, in confronting their philosophy, shares a key truth about God. God looks to the heart. His dealings are beyond the surface. Too much of what is pushed and taught today is the same worldview, just painted a different color. It views faith in Christ solely in a temporal light. It seeks for affirmation of faith in the material and not the eternal. It sees circumstances as a sole indicator of real faith and victory. It is the prosperity gospel that has circled the globe in a widespread lie. Understand this, the friends have a theology that links directly to things we've seen today. And what does Job say? He says, that's enough. I'm not going to listen. And let's have enough, I put here, Job-like integrity to look it in the eye and say nonsense, to have enough character to expose its destructive teaching as a lie. You see, Zophar was convinced of his system. It was his life and passion. And so to protect it, he had to spurn and condemn real hope. He had to undermine Job's pursuit of a redeemer and mock the hope that he placed in the character of the holy God. I do doubt this. I don't think Zophar was aware that he was attacking God or was anti-God, but he'd become that. Because notice this, his passion for his way, and that happened to be traditional wisdom as he saw it, put him in direct conflict with biblical truth. And you know what happens when your passion is your way, your system, your tradition? You will drive right past truth. You won't be able to see truth. And Job confronted that lie. If you have anything to take away from Job's speech, it's this idea that that doesn't work. It doesn't live up to who God is as, as a holy, amazing, wonderful God. It trivializes everything. And two, it puts Job back in a corner. If I suffer, I'm wicked. And has him or pushes him to repent for things he hasn't done. I put here, take a minute to look at your passion. Is it vested in the latest social injustice? I mentioned this this morning. I don't like social injustices, but where is your passion? Is it tied up into the popular rally or riot? And look, way too many Christians got caught up in the rallies and riots that took place. I can promise you this, there'll be more rallies and riots that need your discernment. I've heard plenty of preachers dive into this. They had to talk about it. Instead of focusing on God's word, they had to reference culture and society. It's not that we ignore it, but where's your passion? Is that where it's fixed? There's a lot of, when I say great Christian leaders who have gotten so off, the divide is so great now because they got caught up in their current passion. 
to the extent of polluting the gospel. And if you want proof of that, I can pull up the book and show you, and I can tell you the people who quoted them and pushed them. So it's, it's, it's been a divide because where was their passion? It was beyond, they drove right past the gospel. So take a look at your passion. Is it fixed in social injustice, tied to the popular rally or riot, linked with a prosperity theology, or is it firmly fixed on the gospel hope that the whole world needs? And I say it as an either or, because here's the fact. You're either going to be passionate about the gospel and what God has done to redeem humankind, or you're going to be passionate about whatever thing you're chasing, and that changes from day to day. Sadly, too many Christian leaders have become distracted with their pet philosophy, and their passion has them in conflict with biblical truth. That's what the friends ended up with. My way was so important, I'm going to ignore a redeemer. My way is so important that the gospel needs to adapt to fit my way. I want to prove my point, so the Bible must bend. And all they've done is run past truth. And I put here, let's be sure to expose that like Job instead of embracing it like his friends. Run to Jesus, to the advance of his glory and kingdom, and not let our passions be the hype of this world or the clever reasonings of our own philosophy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and see in this dialogue as Job is walking through some terrible suffering, how friends of his came along and specifically here with Zophar to promote their theology, to promote their philosophy. And instead of listening to Job and hearing the hope that was vested in his closing remarks to Bildad, Zophar instead stood up and said, no, our philosophy trumps hope in a redeemer. Our philosophy is more important than looking towards a Messiah. I hope as we step into the world around us, one, we recognize this, that your analysis of our character and our life is not about our skin or our pockets. It's not about our temporal health or the money we carry around, but instead goes to the deep things of the heart. You care about who we believe in. You care about the submission to your plan. And help us to see that and focus there. And secondly, if we look around us and we find that our passion is vested in something other than the gospel, it doesn't make the thing we're concerned about a bad thing, but it becomes a bad thing when it becomes what we worship. And how quickly we can blaze past the gospel and past truth to promote what we think. We'll bend your word to align with ours and help us to be convicted there, uh, to be changed, to recognize the truth is in your word and everything must conform to what you have written and you have said. Allow your scriptures to be the authority in our lives, the principles there, not the culture around us. In your precious and holy name, amen.